0: Because they didn't have any more money left. Do you regulate your finances according to God's instructions in the Bible? 1 Samuel 2.7 The Lord makes poor and rich, He brings low, and He also exalts. People try to get rich, and some people try to get poor. But guess what? You don't have control over that. Because right here it says that the Lord makes the poor and the rich. You can have the best plans. And it can be gone just like that. Number two principle. There's five principles. Principle number two, Psalm twenty four one. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. We are stewards, and just like the driver's examiner after you take driver's ed and you go to get your driver's license, they 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 test you on what you know and how well you do or don't drive. God is the tester of stewards. He decides if you're using what you have for him. So we need to be concerned about what he cares about and what his desires for our life, what his desires are for us. We are stewards because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It's not ours. I remember having this in... I've thought this several times when we moved into the property that we live on here. And I, I walked around and was like, wow, I own all these trees. And about the time I said that, I ducked looking out for lightning. Because I said, no, that's not, that's not mine. That's God's. He's just made us a steward of that for His use. Those trees are His, they're not mine. Number three, Proverbs 14.31. I had it marked and my marker came out. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. God is generous. He wants us to be generous. Number four, Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard; observe her ways and be wise. Prepare her food in the summer, and she gathers her provision in the harvest. The wise work hard when there's plentiful. It reminds me of the story of Joseph and when he was made the ruler in Egypt because he could interpret the Pharaoh's dream. There was the seven years of plenty, and then the seven years of famine. But the ant works diligently works hard. Number five, I'm going to give you three scriptures here. I'm only going to turn to one, but the other two you can write down if you want to dig deeper later. Uh, write down 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. I'm turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is is number 5, last one. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, we briefly hit this last week, that there's, there's no minimum or maximum to give. But when we give, it's not to be grudgingly, and it should be with a cheerful heart. Remember, God is generous. He wants us to be generous. So those are, those are five principles that, that please God when we handle our money wisely, that we understand and recognize that really it's His, it's not ours, it's his. And we're to be good stewards and we're to be generous stewards with what he has given to us. Okay, Nehemiah 5, on to today's. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and I consulted with myself. That sounds a little funny there. What it means is that he took a step back and took a deep breath. It's usually pretty good advice when you're angry about something, anything. It's good advice. Stop. Let your brain catch up and and kick into gear before your mouth is off and running. All right? Slow down. A lot of times I'll just sigh. My wife will say, boy, that was a heavy sigh. What was that about? Sometimes it's just to relax, let it go, whatever it is just need to let it go. So Nehemiah used, used that bit of wisdom. And he took a deep breath. And he stood back. But why was he angry? This is what we looked at briefly last week in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He was angry because the people of Israel were breaking the law of God. They were not following the law. They were depending on themselves. They were not depending on God, their maker. They were not pro- depending on God, their provider. They were basically, in a sense, abusing. Well, they were. They were abusing one another. They were abusing their privilege in the, in the body. And, and they were not operating under those five principles we, t- we just talked about. They were operating from selfishness. From greed, from pride. Made Nehemiah very angry. He said, Not good, guys, we should not be doing this. So normally in, in all that. when I was in the, the Air Force, all the all the supervisory lessons and briefings and classes and academies that you go to, it's the you know, the one thing they always say is you praise in public and you punish in private. Well, evidently, Nehemiah missed those classes. Again, he was more worried about being right than he was worried about being popular. No sugar here. He's calling sin, sin, and he's calling him out on it. After he consulted with himself, he caught his breath, and I'm sure there was some prayer involved there. He contended with the nobles and the rulers, and he goes right to the source. He goes right to the problem, the ones that were disobeying the law. He goes right to them. He says, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. He called all the leaders together, and he's going to call them out. He's going to rebuke them in, in, in mass. He wasn't pointing the finger at one of them. He was pointing the broad brush across all of them. I said to them, verse 8, we, are, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now you would even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Oh, I love this reaction. If, if, the, if your kids ever respond this way, You know, pick pick your jaw up, and hopefully you didn't break it. Okay, as as it hit the floor, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah just called them out in front of the whole in front of the whole assembly. He called them out. He said, "This is what you're doing. This is your sin. This shouldn't be going on, but it's going on." You know what they say? It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. Yeah? Well, these guys were at least wise enough to keep their mouth shut. They didn't have an answer because Nehemiah was right. They were in sin. Verse nine again. I said the thing which you are doing is not good. I think maybe I think their silence probably stunned Nehemiah a little bit. Took him a little off guard, just like it would you as a parent. And he's got he's kind of reiterating again, kind of like maybe maybe they didn't understood what I said. Let me say it again. Verse nine again. I say the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? Because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Satan doesn't need much of a foothold to tear us down. And I'm sure Sam Ballot and Tobiah thought there was nothing funnier than to watch the Jews destroy themselves from within. They didn't have to do anything. They could sit back and sip on their tea. Because they were, they were destroying themselves from within. A reproach to the nations, our enemies. The nations were laughing at them. They didn't have to come at them with sword and chariots. Because they were not following God's principles... They were not obeying God's law. They were not living the way they should have been. And the nations were laughing at them. He said, should you not walk in the fear of our God? I I read a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God you fear everything else when you're walking with God when you leave it in his hands when you give it to him there's nothing to fear because you know that anything that might happen to you is because he is allowing it we talked at the beginning of this this is we're just looking at a little microcosm but verses 4 or chapters 4 5 and 6 are there's nine weapons Or tools. Satan would use them as weapons against the Jews here. And he would use them against us in our lives. These principles. But God would use them as building blocks. To build up the wall. As they're building Jerusalem. God God wants to turn these things from weapons into tools. To build one another up. And when we tear down instead of building. It's not pleasing to God. When, when, we, when we allow God to be on the throne, when we, we leave him there and we bow at his feet and worship him as God, it doesn't matter what happens here. Because he's got it. He's got our backs. Because Nehemiah was motivated by the fear of God, he didn't need to fear what the enemy might do. We must deal with the problems according to God's will, and we find God's will in God's Word. If you're not in the Word, how in the world can you stand firm? You gotta be in God's Word. You gotta dig. You've got to get to know who God is and how He operates. You gotta let Him live in your heart, and control you. Now, he, he doesn't do the marionette thing, and we're not puppets that, that He does this with. But if we will yield to Him, and let Him be in charge, and fear Him, then we don't need to fear anything else. I do want to read a, read a quick story. It's um, Hand Me Another Brick by Chuck Swindoll. It's uh, on Nehemiah, and, and uh, the emphasis is very much on leadership, uh, Christian leaders in the church. I'm going to get ahead of myself here. Let me read the rest of the, our verses here. Verse 10, Likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. He's telling them, he he said, stop it, and now correct it. Stop charging them usury. Verse 11, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money, and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are exacting from them. He's, he's Nehemiah is laying it out step by step. What has to happen to make it right? And in verse 12, they they finally found their voice. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions, who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. Nehemiah says, you guys are going to repent. You want to make it right? Do it. Do it now. Do it before God. But if you do it before God, be careful. Because to shake out let's may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions that does not fulfill this promise. That's a it's a Middle Eastern custom. I, I think sometimes they even throw shoes to to shake to shake out the garment to say, Get out, we want nothing to do with you. You're worthless to us. And if you make a vow to God you better follow up on it. This is a, this short story I'm going to read is, a, is an example of an individual that didn't. And it's not always quite as dramatic as this. But it's none less, no less important to God. If there's ever a time to take God seriously, it's when we make a promise to Him. A high school buddy of mine in East Houston was just a, a mean and, as mean and coarse and ornery as he could possibly be member of the football team, he was fullback on offense, middle linebacker on defense. He was a wild rebel and tough as a boot. He owned a speedboat and loved to zing around the shores of Galveston full speed ahead, preferably in the middle of the night. Late one night, going full speed, he hit a shallow reef and flipped the boat. He's in a mess, for a storm blew in. The only thing he had to hang on to was a barnacled rock. The waves buffeted him up and down against those razor-like barnacles for several hours. Blood from his wounded body spread to, uh, began to spread out into the water, and he was terrified that sharks would be drawn to him. He fervently prayed, "'Oh God, if you will please deliver me from this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. I'll make my life right. I'll do anything,' he vowed. "'I'll even be a preacher.'" That's the ultimate sacrifice, he felt. God, in his marvelous grace, dispatched the Coast Guard, and they picked him up. A week later, he'd forgotten all about his vow. His body eventually healed, and he was back at his old tricks again. He told me later that every time he took off his shirt, the scars that stretched across his chest and abdomen were mute reminders of his promise to God. He just put them out of his mind. He'd shower and towel off, quickly turning his back to the mirror because the scars haunted him with the thought. You made God a promise. Several months later, he was involved in a head-on collision. It was a miracle. He wasn't killed. He now bears a terrible scar across his face and neck along with those on his body. He lost part of the use of one of his arms, and some of his organs were impaired. But guess what he's doing today? He's preaching the gospel. (laughs) scars and all. He says, every time I shave, I'm reminded that promises to God are to be taken seriously. A vow is nothing to shrug off as insignificant. Once the the Jews here in Nehemiah came to terms with their sin, they made a vow to God. And it says they... Verse 13, and all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. They understood the significance and import of once they repented and told God that what they would do to correct it, and fix it, that they actually went about and did it. They didn't just give it lip service. They did what they said they would do. The Amiah said, Stop it, correct it, repent from it, and move forward. And that's the best way to defeat Satan. Sambel and Tobiah had to start scheming again because the Jews were no longer destroying themselves from within. The work was to begin again, because it had stopped. It had stopped because of the great outcry. Nehemiah called a great assembly. Next week we'll see how he was a great example, a great leader that God used to carry out his plan. We must deal with our problems according to God's will. And we find God's will in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, the the simpleness of it. But oh, the power in the message that we need to fear you, Father, that we need to live according to your word. If we expect any of your blessing on our lives. Thank you for Nehemiah and the leader that he was, that he was the the man of the time to step in and fill that gap that was so needed to be filled in the history of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Thank you that he would be rather he would rather be right than popular or safe. Father, as we sing a song to close our service now and then take a short break and head into our business meeting. We, we ask for your leading and direction. We ask for your guidance and your blessing and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and we'll sing. I think we all know for God so loved the world. Amen. So love the world he gave his only son. We'll take about a five or ten minute break. Um, for those that might not be staying, please help yourself. Don't forget the sausage and the, the cottage cheese and cheese in the, in the fridge and that. So help yourselves.